Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. I'm John Hall, sitting in once again for the vacationing Chuck Buck. On today's broadcast, former CMS official Matthew Albright has the Monitor Monday's legislative update. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Ellen Fink-Samnick has the latest news concerning the social determinants of health, along with Monitor Monday's listener survey. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has Monitor Monday's RAC report. Ed Roche brings us an exclusive report on the various types of fraudulent activities surrounding COVID-19 crisis in the United States. And we begin with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. Well, let me get my whining out of the way. Once again, it's about the prior authorization program, and I am naming names. Last week, NGS had a webinar about the program, and of course, they made mistakes. First, They said that the physician office is not permitted to obtain the prior authorization. That's wrong. CMS does not care if it's the hospital or the physician office that submits the request as long as all the information is present and the authorization number gets on the hospital claim. It may be that the physicians cannot access the NGS online submission system, but that's not a requirement. Second, they kept saying that related claims such as physician claims may also be denied. That's not what CMS says. CMS says that related claims will be denied. There's a big difference between may be denied and will be denied, and none of us want to be the ones to tell doctors they won't get paid only to have their claims get processed and paid with no recruitment. Recoupment, excuse me. Um, NGS did provide us one useful bit of information. They stated that it will be RNs that are reviewing the requests with their medical directors providing assistance. It's good to know that unlike the RACs, they will not be using physical therapists to review medical necessity for surgery. Now, as I reported, hospitals can test out of this program if they get a 90% affirmation rate after six months. But what is not known is how they calculate this rate. If you submit a request and the initial request is not affirmed because the doctor forgot to document prior treatments and you submit that information and get it affirmed, Is that considered a 50% affirmation rate or a 100% affirmation rate? That's going to make a big difference. I also learned that if any of these procedures are performed and an ABN is used to shift liability to the patient, every claim will be held in a copy of the ABN requested and reviewed to ensure it was the right form and that it was completed correctly. If there are any errors or the wrong form is used, you can't make the patient pay. And it just so happens that on Friday, CMS released the new ABN. Now, the content of this ABN is exactly the same as the old form, but the expiration date has changed. Now, you have until August 31st to start using this new form. If you want to find the form, just Google CMS ABN form, and it should be the first result. So get those filing cabinets cleaned out of the old ones. 
Finally, last week CMS announced a new program with a press release entitled CMS Unveils Major Organizational Change to Reduce Provider and Clinician Burden and Improve Patient Outcomes. And in this, they announced that they are creating the Office of Burden Reduction and in Health Informatics with the goal of unifying the agency's efforts to reduce regulatory and administrative burden and further the goal of putting patients first. Can't anyone figure out a better way to reduce bureaucracy than by creating a new government office with its own inherent bureaucracy? I just don't get it. Back to you, Dr. Hall. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday's Rack Report is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. It's June 29th, and as of now, the PHE for the COVID pandemic will expire July 24th, 2020, unless it is renewed. David and I have both reported on the potential end date of PHE. We do not have any intel as to whether the PHE period will be renewed for another 90 days. Judging by recent news, I'd say the PHE period may be prolonged. CMS has given guidance that the exceptions that CMS has granted during this period of PHE may be extended to December 1st, 2020. There's no indication of when the RAC and MAC audits that were suspended will begin. However, we expect the audits to begin any day. There will be confusion when audits resume and the COVID exceptions are revoked on a rolling basis. Yes, you heard that, on a rolling basis. I had some interesting developments as a healthcare attorney during this ongoing pandemic. Three of my physician clients were erroneously placed on the Medicare exclusion list. One would think that during the pandemic that CMS would move mountains to allow a Harvard-trained ER doctor who was willing to work in an emergency room. But because of the lack of staff at CMS, it was actually difficult to fix what should have been an easy fix. This doc was suspended for Medicare based on an accidental and inadvertent omission of a substance abuse issue more than 10 years ago. He disclosed everything except for an 11-year-old misdemeanor. He didn't omit the misdemeanor purposely. Instead, this ER doc relies on other hospital staff to submit his Medicare recredentialing every year. It just happened that this year, the year of the COVID, this doctor got caught up in a mistake that in normal times would have been a phone call away from fixing the error. We cleared up his issue, but he was unable to work for over two months. This is the new time of COVID. Another company, a home health company at the time of the announcement of the public health emergency. This company had been placed on prepayment review. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with prepayment review. I really hope you're not. This is a draconian measure that all states and the federal government may wield against healthcare providers. When you're on prepayment review, you cannot get paid until another independent contracted entity reviews your complaints objectively. I say objectively in quotes because I've yet to meet a prepayment review audit with which I agreed. Mostly because of COVID, we were forced to argue for a preliminary injunction allowing this home health provider 
to continue to provide services and get paid for services rendered during the PHE. And we were successful. That was our first lawsuit during COVID. I believe we went to trial in April 2020. We had another trial in May 2020, which we have not received the result, although we have high hopes. I may be able to let you in on the outcome eventually. But for now, because of COVID, with the shortage of court reporters willing to work, we will not receive the transcript from the trial until over four weeks after the trial. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we begin our third COVID trial. For the first time since COVID, it will not be virtual. This is the guidance that conveys to me that RAC and MAC audits will begin again soon. If a civil administrative judge is ordering the parties to appear in person, then the COVID, quote, stay-at-home orders must be decreasing. I cannot say I am particularly happy about this most recent development, although audits may be easier if they are conducted virtually. The upshot is that no one really knows how the next few months will unfold in the healthcare industry. Some hospitals and healthcare systems are going under financially due to COVID. Big and small hospital systems alike are in financial despair. A RAC or a MAC audit hitting in the wake of the COVID pandemic could cripple many providers. In the rearranged words of Roosevelt, speak loudly and carry a big stick. Back to you, Dr. Hall. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up, you'll hear from David Glazer, Ellen Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, and Ed Roche, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday, June 29th, 2020, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Are you searching for an online learning center that's accessible to your team anytime, anywhere? Imagine a convenient, centralized source of information for those involved with coding, CDI, reimbursement, and compliance. Search no more. Introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. The single source allows your team to access news and information from Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing. At the MedLearn Resource Center, you'll find webcasts, podcasts, ebooks, coding charts, and premium news content accessible from any location, anytime, on any device for one affordable price. The MedLearn Media Resource Center, a centralized online learning hub, will keep your team current and compliant. For a no-obligation quote, call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Call today, 800-252-1578, extension 2. And here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Tell us, David, what's risky this morning? Predicting the future, I guess? So last week, a federal court in the District of Columbia, rejected arguments by the American Hospital Association that the price transparency rule, which is scheduled to take effect on uh, January 1st of 2021, is invalid. Now, listeners may recall that I forecast that the lawsuit would fail, but one can hardly gloat about successfully predicting that the government will win litigation since that happens got close to 90% of the time. So there's a reason I don't predict the results of litigation very often. While I wasn't surprised by the outcome, I was wrong about part of the analysis. What I believe to be the strongest argument to support the regulation doesn't even appear in the decision. 
So the regulations were authorized by a section of the Affordable Care Act that's now codified at 42 U.S.C. 300 GG18E. And it requires that each hospital operating within the United States shall for each year establish an update and make public, in accordance with guidelines developed by the Secretary, a list of the hospital's standard charges for items and services provided by the hospital. Now, the court rejected the three arguments raised by the American Hospital Association, that the regulation was arbitrary, that it unfairly compelled speech in violation of the First Amendment, and finally, it was inconsistent with the statutory requirement. That last argument focused on the idea that hospitals should be merely required to publish their charge master rather than listing details about reimbursement paid by private insurers. The hospitals were arguing that details about contracts with insurance companies are secret and sharing them will drive up prices. They also said Congress only expected a disclosure of the charge master. I'm surprised that the court didn't focus on the use of the term charges, plural. The court's decision spent a fair amount of time discussing how the charge master is a poor indication of the amount patients actually pay for hospital services. As we all know, the insurers have negotiated a reimbursement rate that represents a substantial discount from the charge master. The fact that the statute refers to multiple charges suggests to me that Congress understood this and wanted hospitals to detail why, or I'm sorry, what they charge different payers. While the word charges didn't factor in the decision, it is the focus of the balance of this segment. The transparency regulation only applies to hospital, but everyone listening to this segment should understand how entering into different reimbursement rates for the same service can affect your ability to charge a patient or insurer with whom you have no contract. Absent an explicit agreement, the price for a healthcare service is determined by an implied contract. If a patient or insurer challenges your price, a judge will consider the reimbursement that the facility accepts from other patients and insurers. If your largest payers reimburse between, say, $2,500 and $3,000 for a service, you should expect someone without a contract to pay the list price of $5,000. The bottom line is that a dispute about the reasonableness of your charges, the figure that appears on your claims is likely to be far less important than the rate paid by a, minor, by a majority of the patients and their insurers. For that reason, I strongly encourage models that are linked to a steep discount from your billed charges. On August 6th, we're gonna do a webinar discussing these pricing issues in detail. Insurance companies have suspicious minds. So to avoid being caught in a trap from which you can't walk out, have the amount going out on the claims be either identical to, or at least darned close to, the amount that you expect to get paid. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out. Why can't you see what you're doing? John, back to you. Thank you, David. That was David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis.
And here now, with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Ellen Fink-Samnick. Ellen also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Ellen. What's the latest news concerning the social determinants of health? Well, good morning, Dr. Hall. And as usual, there is just so much to pick. Now, my colleagues know that I am a long-term fan of holistic healthcare and case management processes. Now, those with a W versus an H. And I'll explain that because this approach addresses the whole with a W person and their care of physical health, behavioral health, and psychosocial circumstances, thus not leaving holes in their care, an approach even more vital for today's populations. This approach is also in sync with value-based reimbursement methods. Now, courtesy of COVID-19's rising numbers, especially amid communities and populations most vulnerable to racial and socioeconomic disparities, CMS is again emphasizing the power of value-based reimbursement. Considering national health expenditures for 2020 are expected to more than double to over $7 trillion courtesy of the pandemic, the industry will be even more fixated on high-cost populations and defined strategies to rein in costs. The COVID-19 outcomes for hospitalizations were released by CMS last week. Health disparities and the social determinants were front and center in the data. Based on Medicare claims for beneficiaries from January 1st through May 16th of 2020, the data revealed spending of $1.9 billion in fee-for-service payments for 81,227 COVID-19 hospitalizations. The average hospital reimbursement was $23,000. Black beneficiaries accounted for almost four times more hospitalizations than whites, with black adults having the highest hospitalization rate among racial and ethnic minority groups. 465 hospitalizations per 100,000 compared to whites who had 123. In comparison, Hispanic beneficiaries had 258 hospitalizations per 100,000 and Asian beneficiaries 187. End-stage renal disease patients, uh, individuals with chronic kidney disease and other related disorders undergoing dialysis had the highest rate of hospitalization amongst all Medicare beneficiaries, a whopping 1,341 hospitalizations per 100,000 beneficiaries. A majority of these persons live with several social determinants, among them food insecurity, transportation challenges, access to overall health care, medication access, prescription drug costs, health literacy, and of course, major financial challenges. These patients also have chronic comorbidities associated with increased COVID-19 complications and hospitalizations such as diabetes and heart failure, which prompt increased hospital utilization such as emergency department visits, admissions, length of stay, and overall resource use. Dual eligible beneficiaries had the second highest overall hospitalization rates, 473 hospitalizations per 100,000 with higher COVID-19 infection rates, that number 1,406 cases per 100,000. And by comparison, the infection rate for beneficiaries enrolled only in Medicare was 325 cases per 100,000. CMS is echoing what industry providers, practitioners, and payers have been saying for the past several years. 
Clinicians must have access to a payment structure that accounts for holistic healthcare with a W, including pathophysiology, psychopathology, and psychosocial risk factors that improve quality of life for beneficiaries and the financial health of health organizations. Today's Monitor Monday survey asks, enhance reimbursement by CMS for which populations would be an asset to your organization? Dual eligible beneficiaries, Medicaid CHIP's health insurance program enrollees, traditional Medicare fee-for-service, or all of the above? Well, I'll return with the survey results at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Dr. Hall. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Ellen Fink-Samnick. And as Ellen said, we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Dr. Hall. As David noted in his segment, a federal court last week rejected arguments put forward by the American Hospital Association and other hospital groups that the CMS's transparency rule goes beyond government's authority. Specifically, like David mentioned, the AHA thought HHS was overstepping its authority with the requirement in that rule that hospitals publish the rates they have negotiated with commercial payers. David undersold himself, however, about his prescient prediction that the government would win the argument. I thought he was betting against the odds. Under this administration, HHS has had a string of challenges to its rules in court, which it has ultimately lost, precisely for the reasons the AHA challenged the agency in this case. That is lack of statutory authority. The administration has also tended to lose some of these cases because they didn't go through a proper notice and comment rule writing process. Cases that HHS has lost for these reasons include their attempted cuts to the 340B program, HHS's site neutral reimbursement policy, Azar versus Alina on Medicare reimbursement calculations, state Medicaid work requirements, and the conscience rule. So. Given their batting record, I was surprised when the court ruled that HHS had not overstepped their authority with transparency. AHA has said that it will appeal, so maybe the game is not over yet. As David described, the administration derives its authority for the transparency rule from language in the Affordable Care Act. And in related news, the administration asked the Supreme Court on Thursday to overturn that act. In review, 18 states are arguing that when Congress zeroed out the tax penalty for not buying insurance in their 2017 tax law, Congress had, in essence, made the entire ACA unconstitutional. The Supreme Court is expected to hear oral arguments on this case this fall. On the same day that the administration brought the repeal case in front of the Supreme Court, HHS reported that an extra half million people signed up for the ACA exchanges this year after losing health care coverage from their employers during the pandemic. That's an increase of 46% from the same time last year. One last story that we'll classify under Write Your Congressperson. On Monitor Mondays, we've talked a lot about the waivers and regulatory flexibility that have come out of CMS and HHS during this national emergency. 
including on telehealth and other billing issues. Those emergency orders, however, only last as long as the national public health emergency lasts, and that ends on July 25th, unless something is done to continue it. Last week, the AHA again asked the administration for an extension to the national public health emergency beyond its July end date, arguing that the waivers and regulatory flexibility are needed for as long as this pandemic continues. At the same time, the AHA requested to extend the emergency period, however, the LA Times reported that the president is thinking of ending the emergency period even earlier than its July expiration. The HHS, for its part, denies the report and says that the department is indeed actually making plans to extend the emergency period. But keep an eye on that story. Ultimately, HHS can make those emergency waivers, regulatory flexibility, and enforcement discretions permanent through rulemaking. But let's hope they do a better job in court with such rulemaking than they have in the recent past. Back to you, Dr. Hall. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Up next, Ed Roche with our lead story. This segment is brought to you by Trusted I-10, an ABIO technology solutions company designed to solve one of healthcare's most significant challenges, E&M coding. Joining us now is Ed Roche, Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barraclough. Ed has an exclusive report on the various types of fraud and scams happening around the U.S. today. Hello there. The COVID-19 crisis has opened vast opportunities for fraud. Semi-trucks pull up into parking lots, erect signs for COVID testing, set up tents, start taking drive through customers. The unsuspecting citizen gets in line, hands over their Medicare and Social Security cards, supposedly to verify they qualify for the special government-subsidized rate of $245 per test. Their nose is swabbed. They drive away. The receipt means nothing. The 800 number disconnected. No test results arrive. Their confidential information is auctioned off to criminal networks looking to file false claims and do identity fraud. After a few days, the tents disappear and the mobile testing scam moves to a new location. One government warning noted that if the tester is wearing construction clothing instead of PPE, it might indicate potential fraud. You think? Remember traveling snake oil salesman of 19th century America? FDA reported 69 fraudulent coronavirus products. Many are simply herbs or essential oils repackaged for coronavirus. The COVID-19 core formula, immunity blend, coronavirus protocol. One has CBD plus silver iodine medicinal mushroom, vitamin C, selenium, zinc, vitamin D3, astragalus, and elderberry. By the way, astragalus is also known as milk vetch goat's thorn, or loco weed. It contains a neurotoxin. Drugs based on CBD suggest you need to be stoned to believe the advertising. Alpha 21, made in India. NAD+, Sanibar GK95, coronavirus bone set tea, sugar and milk anyone? Coronavirus cell protection, 
Fuller Life C60, and China Oral Nosodi. Nosodi. It means homeopathic preparation of COVID-19 patient body drippings ingested for a cure. Miracle Mineral Solution. Super Blue Silver Immune Gargle. True Viral Defense. Immune Shot. Germ Stopper. And for the professors, Homeopathic Genus Epidemicus. Drugs derived from human umbilical cords and umbilical blood. Vitacord, Vitagel, and Vitastem, plus an amniotic fluid-derived product called Vitaflow. Pardon me for getting sick just thinking about it. One company was selling a hand sanitizer that was alcohol-free. A flavored honey sold as COVID-19 cough syrup. Corona Cure Infection Prevention Nasal Spray. Corona Defender, Herbal Sachet S. QC20 was promoted as a patent-pending cure. The investment was risk-free and with a guaranteed return of 100%. COVID services for small business owners take the required information, file the papers, abscond with the money, and leave the helpless small business owner holding the bag. Fake COVID charities. A cornucopia of fraud. Back to you, Dr. Hall. Thank you, Ed. You can read even more about scams in Ed's article on Monitor Monday. And now it's time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here is Ellen Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Dr. Hall. And it's interesting. I've been watching the chat and a couple of people commented, but Ellen, our population is strictly Medicaid if they're insured, not only Medicare. And the reason that that option was left off from this is because the data from CMS did not mention straight Medicaid. So we'll be watching for that data. And of course, we'll report on it. To look at this week's survey responses, though, enhanced reimbursement by CMS for which populations would most benefit your organization. As far as the CHIPS program goes, only a little under 4% said that would be the best option for you. Dual eligible beneficiaries were 12%. Traditional Medicare fee-for-service was 24%. All of the above, though, got the votes, and there is no doubt that every organization wants their revenue to be enhanced somehow to address the shortfall. They will be forwarding. Thank you very much, all, and back to you, John. Thanks, Ellen. That'll be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Ellen Fink-Samnick, and Edward Roche, who reported our lead story today. You can listen to Monitor Monday podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. When you do, rate us and give us a review. Have a safe and happy Independence Day. We will return on Monday, July 13th. I'm John Hall, sitting in for the vacationing Chuck Buck and reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Until next time, have a great day, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.